This is the word of God. This is the word of God. Promise. Um, Hear this reading from Daniel 7. Um, It says this. I looked up and there before me was a ram with two horns. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as he changed toward, sorry, charged toward the west and the north and the south. South. No animal could stand against him and none could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between his eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering his two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against him, and none could rescue the ram from his power. The goat became very great, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off, and in its place four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came another horn, which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens and it threw some of the starry host down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as as great as the prince of the host. It took away the daily sacrifice from him and the place of his sanctuary was brought low. Because of rebellion, the hosts of the saints and the daily sacrifice were given over to it It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled, the vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation and the surrender of the sanctuary and and of the host that will be trampled underfoot? He said to me, It will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. And I heard a man's voice, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in in a deep deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Medea and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes is the first king. The four horns represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation but will not have the same power. In the latter part of the reign, when rebels have become completely Wicked, a stem-faced king, a stern, sorry, faced king, a master of intrigue will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the mighty man and the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. The vision of evenings and mornings that has been given to you is true, but seal it up, for it concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, was exhausted and lay ill for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. 
it was beyond understanding. Sure was. Sure is. This is the word of God. I only quoted my favorite part of that, which is, it's beyond understanding. That's uh, always really encouraging when you're about to try to explain it. Um, excuse our play, set, stage. If Oh, sure. Uh, one of the traditions at Christ Central, uh, stop, back, baptism, uh, is that we... Um, we, as part of a gift to the to the family and to Eden, we actually use different bowls for every baptism. We give the bowls to the family so they can have it as a reminder as well. And that's um, I don't know where that bowl's from, but most of them are handmade in this area or by local artists or by congregation members. So uh, it's just a really encouraging and fun kind of little thing to to know. You're getting feedback. I need to do something different. Okay. Um, sorry for my English major uh, uh, breaking up of the uh, the text so that you could uh, uh, see how it was working linear linearly A B C D it should have a D there on 13 and then A little A little B little C little D I hope that helps a little bit um, or if it doesn't too bad um, it helps me um, yeah uh, the, the tough passage t- weird stuff you know. Uh, I, like Daniel, was exhausted and appalled at the vision uh, when I was thinking about it and thinking about what to do. Um, but I kept thinking about the Wizard of Oz. Because the Wizard of Oz is weird, right? There's flying monkeys and crazy things like that. And, uh, and I was thinking about uh, maybe Alice in Wonderland or something, you know, something like that. It's just really, um, you know, if it weren't scripture, you would wonder if it weren't induced vision. Uh, uh, it, it just... It just seems that way. And uh, when I think about The Wizard of Oz, which I love, it's a horrible, horrible thing, isn't it? The Wizard of Oz? Isn't it an awful story? (laughs) I think we think about God like that often. We enter into uh, these expectations and we go and and, and Oz tells us, or we think uh, God, like Oz, tells us to go, oh, we've got to do something else. And I was reading uh, the script of the movie, which is what I first saw about Wizard of Oz. Then I read the book later. But it says, please, sir, we've done what you've told us, Dorothy says. We brought you the broomstick of the wicked witch of the West. We melted her. Oh, you liquidated her, eh? Very resourceful, says the wizard. Yes, sir, so we'd like you to keep your promise to us, if you please, sir. Not so fast, not so fast. I have to give the matter a little thought. Go away and come back tomorrow. Tomorrow? Oh, but I want to go home now. You've had plenty of time already, says the tin man, the lion. Yeah, wizard. (laughs) Do not arouse the wrath of the great and powerful Oz. I said, come back tomorrow. Dorothy, if you were really great and powerful, you'd keep your promises. It's a great line, by the way. Wizard, do you presume to criticize the great Oz, you ungrateful creatures? Think yourselves lucky that I'm giving you an audience tomorrow instead of 20 years from now. Oh, the great Oz has spoken. Toto creeps up from the side. Oh, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. The great powerful Oz has spoken. Who are you? Well, I'm the powerful Oz, wizard of Oz. You are? Uh Uh-huh. I don't believe you. 
No, I'm afraid it's true. There's no other wizard except me. Scarecrow, you humbug. Wizard, yes, that's exactly so. I'm a humbug. Dorothy, oh, you're a very bad man. In the book it reads, aren't you? And he says, no, not a bit of it, my dear. I am a common man. I think that we think that Oz is like Yahweh. We'll never get it wrong on the test. I know in a multiple choice, you're going to get right. Oz, not like Yahweh, right? But I believe that we have these instincts, these deep instincts. And I believe Daniel 8 is written for us so that we would... Uh, so that would counterbalance our idea that this wild and crazy world we live in is just managed by the man behind the curtain. Don't mind me, the humbug behind the curtain. I think we think, even Christians, that he is either just a common man or worse, he's a very bad man. I think that's how we experience this. And if you're honest with yourself... I think you know it, too. This is a strange text. It is full of fantasy and, and these ideas. It's definitely bigger than life and, and wild and, and wonderful. And if you are like my wife, you do not like what she calls fantasy. Star Trek sci-fi. She calls Lord of the Rings sci-fi, which we have a considerable point of disagreement and anger uh, and frustration about things, and uh, I can barely keep myself in right now. Um, but she's like, all I know is that there's trees walking around and dudes with big feet. You can see my pain and my anger here. That uh, I, Yeah, so huge and big and that's what you're experiencing and this is a vision of things that's that's wild and huge and you need to know it but what i want to do at first is just get the get the picture parts and pieces together so you know what's going on i wish i had puppets that could be more helpful and then uh i want you to know what the vision uh what what your what what, uh what we're seeing in that vision what what kind of vision that is what what we're watching so first, let's go really quickly through uh, what we're seeing. What we're seeing is a ram, right? Um, and I was going to bring a, pup, a, 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 a Carolina ram here, but I didn't want to, um, to have you guys idolatrously loving Carolina at this point. And he's killed anyway by the unicorn. Uh, <laughs> so uh, Blake Griffin, the unicorn. Uh, uh, I should stop now. This is, this isn't good. Okay. So, but it's not a unicorn. It's a goat with a big horn in his head. Um, so there's the ram. He's going along. He's got one small horn and one large, larger horn. And that's, I'm just, we're just describing what we see, right? And it's coming. It's pretty strong. It's, um, uh, which it's, uh, one's longer than the other. Uh, it's got, uh, um, it, it, one's grown up later. The bigger one has grown up later and it's going in this conquering direction. The ram is moving from west and north and south. Uh, and it's moving from the Persian empire. If you're using your geography and it does what it pleases, the ram does, but then something else comes up and you have this goat that comes up and it's a unigoat. And, uh, and, uh, it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's traveling along. It's actually coming from the west 
opposite directions. And so you have these things, you know, if we had puppets, this would work something like this. And, uh, um, and the goat, uh, cracks open the, uh, and kills the ram. Um, and that's basically what we hear about the goat, except for when he does it, it breaks off that, that horn on his head. And it breaks off, of course, into four more horns coming out of his head. And naturally, one of those horns grows bigger. We'll call that little big horn. So we have ram, goat, horn, little big horn, who's actually the most terrifying thing. And you could understand that because it was once a horn and a fourth of a horn and now a big horn. <laughs> I was appalled at the vision. And I... And the big horn comes on and, uh, and it is, it is a, is a bad mamma jamma little big horn. It does all sorts of horrible things. It is super duper strong and it takes, uh, uh, takes over and defeats things, pulls things from the heavens. It's just, it's wild and crazy. Um, and it's destructive. And then at one point it, it, it is promised to have an end. Um, and it goes through like that. It goes through a little bit like that. Actually, you don't hear about that promise till the end until after the vision. Because they're discussing it with, you know, the three people talking, Gabriel, and then the two other voices that you were so lucidly understanding what was going on in the story, right? And then Daniel goes, oh my goodness, what's going on here? He gets sick for a couple days. That's a bad vision. That's a bad nightmare, right? Okay, so what are we looking at? We're looking at something called apocalyptic literature. Apocalypse now is apocalyptic, actually. Uh, apocalyptic literature. And, and we may not, we may be uh, thinking that this is kind of fantasy and this is hard to enter into. And it is for us. But I want you to know something. This is not that crazy or hard for our uh, for original hearers to have seen or read. This isn't that difficult. This is actually a genre like, say, Harlequin romance. Is that not funny? Um, this is... <laughs> I really thought that was pretty good. But uh, it's a genre, a type of literature. And people would have understood it. It's, it exists outside of the Bible, too. Think about it like this. If the infomercial, if you sped up 200 years or took 200 years back and you showed somebody an infomercial, let's say it's beyond the ideas of telephones. They don't exist anymore. Uh, we have some other way of doing it, or it's before telephones existed. And you see these numbers flashing forth, and a well-tanned buff dude, uh, you know, doing an exercise machine and yelling at you like this and like this and like this. You get what is going on, and those numbers flashing before you, you know exactly what they're for, right? Fast forward 200 years, and we don't have phones. You show somebody this. Uh, uh, you show somebody this, and they're like, "I wonder what those numbers mean." I wonder what was what was happening with the tanning realities of the day and the age. What does that mean to be lighter or darker? What is bleach blonde hair about? <laughs> we're not picking up on some of the difficulties of this text because we're not ancient Near Easterners or ancient ancient Near Easterners who get all this stuff. Now, I'm not saying it's... It, it's super duper clear because part of this um, is mysterious. That's what part of the genre is. But it's an expectation that they would know and, and know that was going on. They would know that uh, that it's larger than life and that it's it's imagistic and it's kind of flashing at them. And they would know that it's kind of got a um, a, a montage feel uh, and that that that's supposed to evoke the emotions and life. People are sophisticated readers in the ancient Near East. This is not you know it's not like oh. 
well, it's a bad drug trip, and so I wrote it all down, and I'm just supposed to scare you. If people know what they're doing. It's not, you know, people are smart. Let's not be too modernistic and thinking, oh, people haven't thought very well for very long. That's not, in fact, true. So you have this cosmic battle. You find it in immediate rest with all these things going on and, uh, and these images moving forward. It's huge. And there's a temptation or... So, so we, let's talk about the battle for a second. You see this battle, and there's a crossing of the whole earth in a single bound. Remind you of something? You got growing up towards the beautiful land. The battle's cosmic. It's huge. It's larger than life. He sets himself up as the uh, against the prince of hosts, and he tears down the the holy or the ho. The, um, the leader of the hosts and throws them to the ground. He stake, takes a, a stand against the prince of princes. You see all this kind of language you would kind of pick up on? You're like, oh, big, cataclysmic, wonderful, wild. And what happens is, is the temptation is what we do in our modern world, and some theologians have done, is they're going to figure it out. And you have these things like these, usually a lot of times this is preached with a big map behind you. Or a big, like, uh, here's the ugly monster one, and here's ugly monster two, and here's ugly monster three, and here's the seven years between this and this, and then there's 12 years of this, and I've done the math from this and that, and then it's going like this, and you have this, like, you know, little graph, like a perk flow chart or something like that. And if you could just, you know, choose your own adventure through it, you'll figure exactly out what's going on so that you can rest assured that you know when whatever's going to happen is going to happen. But doesn't that make absolutely no sense of the text? The text, if look, if Daniel didn't get it, we're probably not going to get it. And maybe we're not meant to get it like that. Maybe we're meant to get something else. Right? I could fast forward and say, if Jesus doesn't know the day or the hour, you're not going to know the day or the hour. Right? You may sell a lot of books, but you don't know the day or the hour. So we have timelines and images and all that stuff. And that is the temptation. But let me tell you a little bit something about how prophecy works. Sometimes in the Old Testament and in the New for that matter. It's called a foreshortening image or a foreshortened prophecy. Prophecy sometimes is just what we do on Sunday morning and what the church has done and the ancient church, the, the, the Old Testament church did forever. And that's just proclaim the word of the Lord to the people. That's prophetic. That's one definition of prophecy. Another definition of prophecy is foretelling saying what's going to happen in the future. And sometimes that's immediate, like what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks or next couple of months or next couple of years. And sometimes that's um, uh, eternal, what happens in the future, uh, uh, way in the future or at the end of the days or something like that. You hear language like that. Well, Daniel's got a mix of everything going on in here. It's completely cosmic. It's completely wild. They call Daniel or the last bits of Daniel, the revelation, the book of revelation of the Old Testament. What you're seeing here is a foreshortened image. Has anybody traveled west by car? What's up? Very good. Kansas. Flat. Driving west. What do you see? Well, on the other side of Kansas. You're starting to get towards the Rockies, right? What do you see? You see the Rockies. What do they look like? One thin mountain range that goes straight across and up, right? If you look at it, it goes doom, 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 like that. And maybe there's one behind there. But the way you see it is a single mountain range. Now, drive to the first round of the mountain ranges. Go past it. Now what do you see? 
you're in the middle of levels of mountain ranges. Right? Describing it from Kansas, Wizard of Oz, got to get to Kansas. I mean, who knew? Kansas, Wizard of Oz, I didn't even think about that. Describing it from Kansas makes it look one way. Describing it in the middle of it as you live it out makes it look another way. You could be in the middle of different mountain ranges and it goes on for a long time, right? So between the ram and the beast, it may look very, or the ram and the, uh, and the goat, it may look very different. But from Daniel's historical point of view, from where he's looking, he's telling you the picture of everything that's going to happen. And he's doing it in a foreshortened manner. So we don't know what the timeline is on this. We don't know the timeline in between these things. And that's also what's happening in terms uh, that blurring of when that's happening also serves what apocalyptic literature does. Apocalyptic literature does is comfort from the past in the present and for the future. And it is for each of the readers. It's from the past, in the present, and for the future. This is why when you look at this apocalyptic literature, for Daniel and his contemporaries, this would have been an incredible vision, very encouraging vision. We talked about in Daniel 5, Belteshazzar, uh, Belshazzar, sorry, Belteshazzar is Daniel, Belshazzar, um, Daniel comes up to him and says, hey, your kingdom's going to end here, right? And he had this confidence to say that. Well, it is likely, well, it, it is likely, it is this precise vision that he kept in his heart to the point where he could confront then Belshazzar about this thing. Because it, you hear some of the same images that are going back and forth throughout all this, uh, all this stuff. Where, um, where, uh, um, media and, uh, media or media and, and, uh, Persia are the, are the two, uh, people who are going to take him over. That's exactly what he says to him in, in Daniel 5. Well, we hear from our explanation when the angel starts to talk about it or the person starts to talk to Daniel and give interpretation of the green dream, he says, media Persia is you got to love it when they actually tells you what it is. Media Persia is the two-horned ram. Thank you. So now we know what that is. Huge importance and encouragement. Sinclair Ferguson, who's a pastor in Columbia, um, says this. The handwriting on the wall was a prophecy against Belshazzar. This is talking about uh, 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 chapter 5. And the last word was Perez, or maybe Peren, or maybe Persia. He says, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede, media, took over the kingdom at age 62. In all likelihood, the authoritative interpretation of this vision that helps to explain the boldness of Daniel's words is this vision. It's not, remember, it's not chronological. So God gives him this vision so that he can then do it and give it to Belshazzar and can encourage the people of the time. But not just that, it's relevant for Israel's future too. In 334, in, 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 uh, 334, 75 years since the last prophecy, that's probably what's going on here. The temple is rebuilt and most of Israel's back in the land. And there's this dude named Alexander who comes. Alexander the? Thank you. The Greek. The one horn who grows stronger than all the rest, right? The, or, or the one, the, the, the one with the horn out. This is the goat. I'm getting my guys confused. Sorry. This is the goat. The Greek is the male goat. The, the, the goat is the Greek. According to the scriptures, sorry, the Greek one who comes and he moves forward and he's unstoppable and he destroys the media Persia, the, the, the uh, media Persia and he moves forward in that. 
And if you're in 334 and you're working, looking back at this and you see Alexander the Great coming up and Media Persia has been taken over for a while and then you see this Greek guy coming up you're going, wow, this is incredible. Look what's happening here. And Alexander the Great comes and takes over the known world at the time. And at the height of his reign, the scripture says here, anybody know anything about Alexander the Great? At the height of his reign, he comes tumbling down. Antiochus Epiphanes, 175. Probably that fourth horn, little big horn. Antiochus Epiphanes. The illustrious God is what he called himself. His contemporaries called him a madman. Remember the scriptures? Master of intrigue, completely wicked. In Jerusalem, he placed the high priest with a guy of his own choice. He killed 40,000 people in the, day of, in, the, in the space of three days. Remember the scripture said astounding devastation. Destroying the holy people and the mighty men. He reached the host of heavens, the scripture says. He had actually entered the holy of holies. He ceased daily sacrifice. Antiochus Epiphanes. That's what the book of, uh, the, the, the apocryphal book, uh, um, uh, Maccabees is all about. You know this? The story of Maccabees? It's Jewish history. Thank you. The, uh, uh, anyway, but it's also relevant for us. God has been faithful, and this goes to our future too. We're in between the mountains. God has been faithful to his people for all this time. Because we're still in the picture. Remember, it's some of these things concern the end of days. Some things have happened, some things are going to continue to happen. It's a foreshortened image, and we're in the middle somewhere. It's cosmic, and it's about the future, and it's basically saying, as we peek behind the curtain of what's going on, that the Lord is in control of all of these things. Stock markets. God is great and greater than we can think, and He's good. All of our job, all of our jobs. Listen, y'all. One but six months ago, we were praying for rain. We're praying that it would stop. We prayed for rain. No, not on our timeline. Did he bring rain? No. But he's brought rain, ample rain for us. Praying earnestly for that. Prayed from this pulpit that that would happen. And the answer is yes, in my time. And I'm powerful to save. This apocalyptic literature is relevant But it's relevant because we're not just seeing this cool genre type. It's relevant because it's showing us something about who God is. It shows us a who. Who who is this God? And it is a God of power. If you look back on your text there, I tried to bold um, all the places that power is mentioned. You see there in section A, power. In B, power, power. Powerless, power, power. In C, power. Trampled on. I'm trying to use powerful words. Thrown to the ground. Indeed, desolation, trampled underfoot. You see, uh, um, uh, in B, little b there, uh, have the same power. And then at the end, see there, gosh, you'll become very strong, but not by his own power. He'll be devastation. He'll destroy the mighty men. He'll destroy, but, uh, uh, he will be destroyed, but, uh, not, not by human power. You see all this. This is a passage about power. Isn't it? And what the scripture is telling us is that there is a man behind the curtain and his name is Yahweh. 
There is a person behind the curtain. It is the God of the universe. And he's in control of all the foreshortened images, whether it's Antiochus Epiphanes, whether it's the Media Persians. What, who, it does not matter. He is in charge. And he knows the days in which they will end. He knows when the stock market's at 14000 and he knows when it's at 6000 And he's in control of all those things. I was meeting with a pastor. Um, I was gone at um, uh, a general assembly kind of thing. That's our national organization as a church, as Presbyterians. And uh, I, I was thinking about, we, we were talking about oppression and justice and all those things. And he said, there's lots of good books about oppression, um, but there's really not a, a lot of good books about uh, from uh, about power. And I said, you know, what needs to be written is a book about power from a dominant person's perspective. Not from a subdominant person's perspective, but a theology of power from a dominant person's perspective. And he said, I think it's been written. And I said, what? He goes, I think Tolkien wrote it. This is the Lord of the Rings, that power can be so corrupting that it needs to be watched out. But we both started discussing about it. He was like, but the power to actually redeem the faults of the ring. That's the part when he's like, yes, you're exactly right. That's what we need to do. Whatever power and light and force is, brings justice and goodness, those kind of things, we need an idea of that. And Daniel 8 gives us that image that he is in control. He has numbered the days of the wicked tyrant Antiochus Epiphanes or whoever. He has numbered their days, literally numbered them. Among job losses and droughts, do you believe in his power? Is he a humbug or a common man? Make believe? Do me a favor. Think a little bit about the thing that makes you think he's just the man behind the curtain, weak and humbug. Think about it and pray. Pray that you would see that he is the one that is strong behind all those other images and instances and beasts. Even yourself. The scripture ends of the images and says, He, little bighorn, will be destroyed, but not by human power. Not by human power. Annie Dillard, one of my favorite writers, says this, Why do people in churches seem uh, like cheerful, brainless tourists on a packaged tour of the absolute? On the whole, I do not find Christians outside the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does not one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue, ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. We should be lashed to our pews. <laughs> you see what she's getting at. We have such a tame and trivialized God. And we need to see him as the one who is powerful upon powerful upon powerful. As Pastor Howard said in one of the first seven sermons, the Lord of Lord of Lords, the God of God of Gods. And this should do exactly opposite of what Glinda the Good Witch told Dorothy. 
What did Glinda tell her? You had the power all along, Dorothy. That is Bahuki. <laughs> We're in Daniel. You can say all sorts of crazy things. It doesn't really matter. That's not true. What it should do is go, I have no power here. These are tremendous beasts that I have no power to change or do anything with. It should humble us and makes a, make us a, a collapse on him. Make us despair in ourselves. And collapse on his goodness. Because what we hear, we see more uh, in this is that God is not just powerful. There's a severity to this. And I feel like this is dangerous stuff to talk about in church. Um, but because we get such an image of an angry and, and wrathful God. And I do think there is God is angry and wrathful at times. But I want you to know that he is severe. He's talking about really important things. In verse 13, when it says the daily sacrifices are gone, that ticks God off. The very livelihood of their cultural life, the very religious experience of forgiveness is being taken away. And that is going to make God mad. The most important part of their identity with Yahweh has been ripped apart by this person. And it is for us too. Astounding devastation, he says. These people are destroying the mighty men. Daniel falls prostrate because things are so severe. Antiochus Epiphanes, to spite God and his people, took a pig, unclean animal, and sacrificed it on the altar of God. It's like spitting in the face of God and his people. And God's going, this is severe stuff that we get ourselves involved in and that we are waiting for redemption for. We need to know that those days are numbered. And just in case you're wondering if that's just the mean Old Testament God, y'all know Jesus says some crazy things too, right? Y'all know that Jesus says hard things because life and death are at stake. No prophet talks about hell more than Jesus. I'm sorry. I'm sorry you thought he was trivialized and manageable, but he is not. He is not. Follow me and let the dead bury their dead, Jesus says. Enter the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. It's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And whatever you've heard about ancient Israel, there is no gate called the eye of the needle. He meant an eye of a needle. Unless you hate your father and your mother, you cannot follow me. Follow me. Like lamb, sheep, to the slaughter. Sign up for that. Go team. Y'all, Jesus talks about severe things. This is difficult. This is difficult. But what it does, and there's some context to all those, and we preach and teach about them all the time, and I will continue to do it. It's loving, it's, it's gracious, it's wonderful. But it's severe, and severe mercy is what he's for and after in our lives. These things can really haunt and hurt and destroy us. 
And so we lean towards the severity of his kindness by trusting him. I love what, um, what Peter says. And John, he's like, you know, he just told him that he have to basically eat his flesh in order to keep following him. Jesus says this and he goes, uh, in the Georgia translation, dude, what are you talking about? And he goes, do you want to leave too? And he says, where else am I going to go? You have the words of eternal life. That moment is a beautiful moment for Christians. I don't know, but I don't know where else. You are life to me. And God likes us in that kind of severe relationship where all we can do is trust him. We keep trying to manage God, but we manage him like we've managed 401ks. <laughs> They're working about 40%. Severance about minus 40. It's empty. C.S. Lewis says, talking about how our expectations meet his, but the question is not what we intended ourselves to be, but what he has intended us to be when he made us. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But then he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. And it doesn't seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation that is that he's building quite a different house than from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to have a nice, decent little college, cottage, but he's building a palace. He intends to live there. I love that. But what most important do you see? We keep trying to manage him. We need to lean into his severity. And I hope you're feeling... I, I, I'm, I keep feeling the need to pastorally go, I know what I'm doing with you guys. This is deep and hard stuff. But I want us to give it a little bit of taste of the fact that when Daniel heard this the first time, he got sick for several days and didn't want to do anything. Okay? This is hard stuff. It, it's hard stuff. <laughs> But most important, what we see is that God is, in fact, victorious in this vision. The days of the evil is numbered, counted on, known. This prince of the hosts, the prince of princes in 25. These are shadows of the one to come, who is Jesus called the prince of peace. The most important verse that you can read here, I can't do that because the scriptures are all important, but the one I like the most is, yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. Yet the evil, this cosmic evil will be destroyed, but not by human power. What is required is God to send his only son to come and bring redemption and bring victory to the land. We can't muster it and fix it ourselves. We can't bring enough justice. All of our justice will bring injustice too. But He has come supernaturally to come into the world and redeem us. And there is images of Jesus as the victorious warrior, as the Prince of Peace. Bloody sword called the Prince of Peace. 
There's images of him coming and tearing down the things that destroy us. The Prince of Peace. God, Acts 5, exalted him to his own right hand as the Prince and Savior that he might give repentance and forgiveness to all of Israel. The Prince of Life in Acts 3. The God of Peace will soon crush Satan under his feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. How simple is that? The God of Peace will crush Satan under his feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. How wonderful. That's like all theology you need to know. That's it. Jesus wins. God bless you. That's what you need to know. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that what is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. And thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus wins. God bless you. And this should give us a healthy longing for the cosmic victory that is in Jesus. Y'all, it ain't worth it if you just get the job. It's not worth it if the economy rebounds. It's only worth it if death is beaten and life is restored for eternity. It's only worth it if Miss Brown comes up out of the grave. Unless we can hug the necks of the deceased, it's not worth it. Of those who've died in Christ. We're asking, we've been promised and are now asking in hope and confidence of who the Lord is that we will be raised from the dead. This is what we believe. It's insane. And beautiful and encouraging. And this should give us a great and deep longing. And it should make us so heavenly minded that we're actually some earthly good. Because we can think and know that we are having an imperishable reality in our lives. Imperishable. And that we can walk forward knowing we can work for justice in this day and in this age. What does it say that Daniel did? He got up and went about the king's business. And that's what we do. Seeing this vision, we get up and we go about the king's business. Now, for Daniel, that meant the king that he served, Belshazzar. Belshazzar. For us, it means the other king we serve, both our bosses and life and all that stuff, but the great king. Let me leave you with this. He is the powerful one, and we are not He is not the Wizard of Oz. He is severe, but he can be trusted. And most, he is victorious, and we are right to long for him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the King of King of Kings. Lord Jesus, we thank you that even in your severity, that severity brings us great mercy that you, Prince of Peace, crush the head of Satan and that we may be blessed. Lord, help us lean into it. Lean into this cosmic image, this Daniel 8 idea that so fights against our haunting uh, despair and doubt that you may just be like Oz. 
Lord, thank you that you are not. Thank you that you are great and that you are good, that you're merciful, and that you take salvation and mercy so seriously that you will destroy what needs to be destroyed in order to bring it to your people. You are good and kind. Help us live in light of our eternal redemption. We ask in your name. Amen.